Uh, tonight I don't have a handout or a PowerPoint, so uh, you'll have to rely upon your Bibles. So open those up to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we are tonight, starting in verse 10. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got plenty of them underneath you in the pew racks. You can take one of those and uh, turn to Ephesians 6. We're going to be talking about the armor of God. Now, of course, no armor of God talk would be complete without the obligatory props. If you've ever had uh, somebody speak on that passage before, or maybe in a children's class there's always something. This is something that's very special to me. I don't just, didn't just go run out and get something, you know, for this occasion. But uh, this was given to me by my close friend, Corey McLaughlin. He's uh, an individual I've known for a while. He went to uh, Lancaster Bible College with me. We were roommates. And uh, then we also both went to Gordon-Conwell uh, to seminary in Massachusetts. And upon my graduation, he, he bought this for me. So it's a very special gift that he gave to me. So he found this prop, and then he also took this sword and brought it into one of those uh, malls where they have the, I don't know, you, you've seen the piercing stations and all that kind of stuff and, and where they can engrave cups and pens. We well, said, could you engrave this sword? <laughs> and they said, well, we're not really set up to engrave swords, but let me see what I can do. So they put a little custom rig, and, and, and he put a passage from Ephesians 6 on it for me, and they managed to somehow inscribe on that, so that's pretty neat. Reminds me to stand firm, therefore. So I'll put this out of the way. Got that off my list here, so I think I, I've done a good job. End of sermon, right? Uh, we've got the props. No. Um, I mean, it's going to be difficult for me to share a sermon on Ephesians 6 without sounding trite, because we always think about the armor, but tonight, specifically as you listen to this, I want you to pay more attention to what those pieces of armor refer to, rather than the armor themselves, right? Because we can often picture the helmet, the sword, the shield, the, the breastplate, all those different things. We're great at picturing those, but I'd like us to put our greater emphasis on what those stand for. So as we go through them, uh, just make a mental note of that, or if you have a pen and some scrap paper, write them down. Because what comes to mind usually is those physical, those metaphors, but what we're really looking for is what they stand for and their real value to us. So tonight, the emphasis is on standing firm, and we're going to be talking about Ephesians 6, specifically verses 10 through 20. That's where I want you to focus in on tonight. That's what our, our passage is going to be. In the ESV, it says, stand firm. I'm sorry, stand therefore. If you have an NAS, uh, it says, stand firm against the devil's schemes. So we're going to be talking about how to resist the devil's schemes tonight. Uh, take up the armor of God, Paul says, and stand firm. Of course, this is one of Paul's letters uh, to the church of Ephesus. And Paul says in this passage that we are engaged in a battle. So we need this armor of God to be able to withstand this battle. And that's important for us to realize because whether we like it or not, or whether we realize it or not, there's a battle that is raging even now for our souls. It's not so much that there's any question about how all this will turn out. We know from the book of Revelation how things end, but in the meantime, there is a battle, a war going on in our own souls, and Satan plays a role in that, and we are to be prepared. We are to stand firm. So despite how familiar this passage may be to us, there still may be a lot about this armor of God that is unclear to us. So I want to focus on this armor a little bit more closely, and hopefully you'll get something new, even if you've heard about this ever since you were a little kid, even if you grew up in church, if you were born in church, you know, and you were born and they started teaching Bible lessons to you, maybe you heard this the first thing, uh, uh, you know, if that's the case for you, I, again, God can teach us new things, even for things familiar. So let's read this passage, 
and then we'll go through it. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, in the ESV reads this way. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. All right, so again, looking at this passage as a whole, Paul is telling us that whether we realize it or not, we are at war. Now, if Paul's really calling us to some kind of divine war against evil, as God called the Israelites in the Old Testament too, we might expect that he would tell us to put on real physical armor. But, of course, he doesn't do this. He doesn't call us to put on Kevlar vests and arm ourselves with all kinds of literal equipment for the cause of Christ? Why? Because from everything Paul is telling us, our war is not with this world or its people. Ephesians 6.12 says, for we do not, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is especially important in today's culture. With so much of the violence that we've seen in the news lately, right? It's a violent world. I don't need to tell you that. You know, you just turn on the news and you see it. And we can rattle off several examples just from this year, unfortunately. But more so than that, we live also in a time where the name of Christ is just being more and more maligned and, and people who are Christians are, um, are being just not really treated as, as uh, individuals to be taken seriously, right? Uh, we're, we're being viewed more and more as people just believe in a fairy tale, and worse, viewed as people who are, who are dangerous in this culture. Not just, okay, that's fine if you, if you want to believe that, but almost as if we are the intolerant ones and we're a, a menace to society in that way. And for that reason, because people have such a skeptical view of Christians in this day, I think it's all the more important that we realize as we read this passage that God is not calling us to somehow go to war against these people, whether literal or in a, in a metaphorical way. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. So it ultimately becomes less helpful for us to speak about, you know, fighting back and trying to win the culture war and all those kind of things. God's saying here that's not, that's not what he's calling us to. He's saying here our, our, our war is not against flesh and blood. You know, and that's good for us to be mindful of. It's good for us to adapt our language in that particular way. Because you also have to understand, in the context, in the day and age we live, right, people see all these examples in the news of maybe, you know, extreme terrorists, Islamic terrorists, whatever, in the world. And then, you know, um, we're, we're, we're saying, you know, we're in the army of the Lord or something. It just, just 
think for a second about how that kind of language sounds, how that comes across to somebody who might not have ever grown up in church, and how somebody might mistake the two or put the two together and say, well, does that mean they're like them? Does that mean that they're trying to fight us, that they're willing to do whatever it takes to try and make Christianity win in, in our culture? So we have to be very careful about the language we use. But here, we don't, we don't even, if we just follow what the Scripture is telling us, we'll be safe. Because it's saying we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. No, our battle is something different, something very different. Our struggle is against the rulers, the powers, and so on that we'll see in this passage. Um, it's very tempting to see the unbelieving people of this world as enemies of the gospel. After all, who else causes persecution of Christians in the Middle East? Or who else would it be that causes the name of Jesus to be named as little as possible in public schools, or has promoted the sexual perversion of this world, or um, promiscuity, or the, the eroding definition of gender. Uh, who else have done these things but people, right? Aren't human beings the one who reject Christ's message and mock his church? Aren't human beings the one that blow you off when you try to share your faith with them? And if God asked us to take a stand against evil, who else would we think to fight against but the people of this world? who do not believe. But again, nothing could be further from the truth of what Paul teaches here. And while it is, made, it is true that we may endure persecution and difficulty at the hands of unbelieving men and women, these are the ones that we are not called to stand firm against, using those, those words. For even if we could subdue all of the non-Christians of this world who oppose us, right? Just imagine that for a second. Even if you could somehow subdue every single non-Christian who opposes you, let me ask this. Would evil really disappear forever? Would all the trouble just magically disappear? Of course not. Because it's not just out there. It's also within us. Aside from the fact that our sinful natures still cause us to do evil ourselves, this passage is also telling us that our ultimate enemies are not really people, but the dark spiritual powers that influence this world. Verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the words rulers and authorities even uh, don't mean rulers in the sense of world leaders or presidents or dictators, but rather Paul is speaking about Satan and his legions of demonic spirits that currently influence and corrupt this world. In a word, Paul is talking about demons. And yes, we believe that demons are real. You know, demons might not be something that you hear a lot about in the popular church today. You know, there can be a tendency of some churches to avoid the subjects that would offend some, or they might say, we might have a visitor here, so I don't want to talk about the concept of hell or, or the reality of Satan, because that might make us look, you know, silly. But the Bible affirms the reality of both Satan and demons. And if we're going to be honest about what the Bible teaches, that's part of it too, very much a part of it, and that's what Paul is addressing here. Um, if you believe in scriptures, you can't uh, ignore them, okay? And it's important for us to know where our battle truly lies. The reality is, every moment of every day, you are engaged in a war that is bigger than you can possibly imagine. It's a war where spiritual powers of the heavenly realm are constantly influencing this world to oppose the things of God. It's a war, a war in which, in addition to our own sinful desires, Satan also exists and plays a role in tempting us to lust, to cheat, to lie, or become lax in our spiritual lives. 
This realm is just as real as the one we see. And if you think human enemies who taunt and persecute Christians are dangerous, then you have no idea how powerful our true spiritual foes are. For demons are, as you know, probably, that they, they are, um, not probably, but I mean, you, as, as you probably know already, uh, they are fallen angels, which means that they are purely spiritual beings that exist in an immaterial world that is above ours. Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, also known as angels. So demons are not only real beings, but the Bible tells us that they are more powerful than we are. And so Jude 9 and 10 tells us that we should be careful not to speak lightly about them. You shouldn't just go around taunting the devil. Okay? Remember what the Psalms say, that we are lower than them. Okay? Uh, we, are, we are weaker than them. Above all them, of course, is Satan, who is called in Scripture the ancient serpent, serpent the devil. And not only does he blind the minds of unbelievers so that they will not accept the gospel. That comes from 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. But he also actively tempts believers to sin. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Satan prevented Paul from coming to Thessalonica. Revelation 2.10 tells us that he has the power to put people in prison. And of course, we know the story of Job, where, of course, with God's permission, Satan was able to kill some of his family and inflict sores on Job's body. So Satan and his angels are very serious enemies indeed. They can attack us from outside of the church and within, and are beings beyond our own power to defeat. But they are very much at war with us. And that leads us to this section of Scripture that we know or have heard about several times in our lives, this armor of God passage. What does this have to do with heavenly beings? And why are we being told to put on the Lord's armor instead of physical armor and weapons? Because it's the only weapon that will be effective against our enemies if they are truly spiritual. And even more, demons are more powerful than us, as we've already established. So we need God's power to defeat them. So the spiritual armor can't come from us. It must come from God. And if these demonic beings are real, and they are currently waging war against us, then we need God's armor if we want to have any hope of surviving their attack. It's why the text says, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. We're engaged in a battle for our souls every day, and God's called us to stand firm against these supernatural forces. That's why we need the armor of God. It's said in Ephesians 1, 18 through 20, if you flip back to the first chapter of this book, it says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? So Paul's telling us there that there's this power that he wants us to know about. And, and I think, at least in part, Ephesians 6 is describing some of that power that's available to us. He's going to say these are weapons that come from the Lord. So you can very much connect those two passages together. What is this armor then? Okay, if it's not physical, we're going to see there's these physical analogies being drawn, but what is it? And what does it consist of? What does it really look like to use in our everyday lives? Well, as we describe this armor piece by piece, again, keep in mind and write down, if you will, the 
things they actually stand for, not just the pieces of armor themselves, but also keep in mind that as we list these things and we look at these metaphors, recognize that they're primarily defensive and not offensive in nature. That means we are not called to defeat Satan and his angels, but rather to, as the text says over and over again, to stand firm, stand firm against his attacks. Martin Luther was careful in his wording in a mighty fortress. In verse 1 he says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And that's true, as we talked about the power of demonic beings a second ago. We are no match for them on our own. That's why we affirm that Christ is the one that will defeat him. Again, in the same song, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, this man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle, or he shall win the battle. In a way, Jesus has already defeated Satan, mind you, through his accomplished work on the cross. But we know he also will finally and totally defeat him in the last days when he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Satan will to be punished for all eternity. That's Christ's work. So what does that mean for us? It means that this armor that is about to be described isn't offensive. It's not the means by which Satan will be defeated. It's our mean of standing firm, of just standing firm as long as God calls us to, to resist his attacks until Christ wins the battle. That's what we're called to do. Our job is to stand firm. And you know, this passage meant a little bit more to me as I've just been thinking about some of um, our own uh, things that we've been going through. Sarah and I have, have shared, um, you know, everything that's happened in Caleb's life with the, the, the concussions he's gone through and how just to, as a parent to encourage him, um, you know, through this time and uh, all the temptations that might be coming his way to, to Believe the lie that, you know, this might never get better or that God isn't really for me. You know, God's doing all these things. Why would a loving God do that? And, and, uh, and, and is God really for me? Does he really even care? You know, those are the kind of lies that can be tempting to believe. And, and against those attacks, um, I want to do everything in my power as a parent to let him know. And, and for any of us, really, who go through a battle that is a battle not only with our physical selves but with our minds— that God has provided these weapons to stand firm against such attacks. Because these attacks, if they're not really physical in nature, are going to be mental in nature, challenging our faith, causing us, to, or at least tempting us, to doubt the good promises that God has made to us. And so God says, no, you know what? You're going to be attacked with these kind of things. It might take any kind of form. I don't know what kind of things you're going through. Or maybe if you've gone through a, a rough time this past year or whenever, but during those, those difficult times, whether they be physical or otherwise, maybe it's a loss in the family, a loss of a job, something that's happened to you, there are going to be certain attacks that are going to come upon your soul, your spirit. And God says, stand firm. How you do that? Well, this is how it's going to describe these things. And we're to put them all on. It doesn't just say, you know, take the belt of truth and that's good. It says, put on the whole armor of God. God intends us to use all these things to be able to withstand so let's go through them one by one. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So in the ESV, 
as well as the NIV, if you have an NIV tonight. The translators refer to this first piece of armor as a belt. And actually, it's a little unclear which piece of armor Paul had in mind here. If you read different commentaries, they'll say it could have referred to a belt, it could have re- referred to a girdle, uh, a tunic, something that, um, you know, that kind of gathered the garments together and held them in place, especially when you were running, okay? Um, I would personally choose the latter, I guess, even though we're more familiar with a belt, uh, since it seems that Paul is listing here the armor in, in the order in which a soldier would put them on. So it would seem like this undergarment where, you know, and, and tying all these things together so that you could run might be the first thing you'd put on as a soldier. No matter which um, we choose, the meaning is the same. Both the belt and this leather girdle thing that they would have worn as soldiers back then would have been used primarily to gather all loose garments to allow for better movement of the legs. And if either of these things were slackened, it would mean the soldier was off duty or not prepared to fight. And so, hence it says, having fastened on the belt of truth. That's not only um, the only place uh, a metaphorical war belt is described in Scripture. If we go to Isaiah 11.5, and you don't have to turn there necessarily, but it says in Isaiah 11.5, the Messiah wears the belt of righteousness and the sash of faithfulness on his body. That's the way it describes it. And although it's not a belt of truth per se, We can see that in both cases, the main idea is that these virtues characterize who the person is. They are part of their total character. So the Messiah is characterized by these attributes. And so back in Ephesians 6, where we are now, what is this truth that's being described? Are we to gird ourselves up with the truth about Christ and the truth of the gospel? Or is Paul saying that we should fasten ourselves with truthfulness? That is, truth and character. I would say both, um, that our lives should be totally characterized by truth, and we should also bear the truth of the gospel with us as we go. Truthfulness is essential to all their virtues and qualities, and therefore it must be the first thing that we put on as Christians. Of course, you know, if somebody's not trustworthy, then everything else about them falls apart if you can't trust them. But also, this truth is one of the first things that we have as our weapon, that we know that God is truthful, that the Word of God, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, can be trusted. And so no matter what lies come into our heads, whatever situation comes into our life, we know we can rely upon this truth. It holds everything together. There are many ways that we can gird ourselves with truth. We can read our Bible daily. We can absorb what the Bible says about God, about Christ, about salvation. Believe it with your whole heart. We can speak truthfully uh, of Christ, excuse me, when we speak to your family or our families or our co-workers about Christ. We can guard our doctrine closely, as Timothy says, so that when you're reading something online, perhaps a blog or or see some sort of Christian-esque quote on Instagram or Facebook that's liked by all your friends but somehow just doesn't quite line up with Scripture, you won't be led astray. You know the truth so that you can resist falsehood. Um, nowadays, they say there's a lot of, quote-unquote, fake news out there from all political points of view. And now, more than ever, we need to know what truth is and be discerning. We should also put on truth in that we should be trustworthy. So we should be like Christ in our everyday lives. Um, and Jesus was totally trustworthy in every circumstance. Be someone of integrity. 
And if you do these things, you will ward off the devil's temptations to be false. Remember that Satan is called the father of lies in John 8.44. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks is a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So you can see how the belt of truth would be in a direct opposite of the enemy that we're facing. Second one we have is the breastplate of righteousness. So following this, this belt or girdle of truth, whatever you want to call it, we are called to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Verse 14b says, Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And after a Roman soldier would have girded his waist, he would have next placed that breastplate over top of it, if we're going in order. Uh, that normally covered the body from the neck to the thighs, and above all, it was known as the heart protector. So common soldiers this, would have this plate, and it would have been made of bronze. Maybe for more wealthy officers, it would have been uh, an, a more elaborate chain mail, which would have given a little bit more freedom of movement. Um, we normally think of it as a front piece, but of course it would have covered the back as well. So like this previous piece of armor we talked about, this one is also found in other passages of Scripture. Um, another similar passage uh, to our Armor of God text is again found in Isaiah, but this time in 59, verses 16 and 17. It says, He, that is God, saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. I always found that fascinating how closely that resembles the passage we're talking about tonight. But again, this armor analogy is not a new one. God himself is said to put on a breastplate of righteousness. And in that Isaiah passage, it means that God is displaying his righteousness, his righteous character, as a basis for judging. Because God is righteous in everything he does, he has the right to judge. So that's the context of the passage. So again, getting very practical here, what does it mean in Ephesians here that we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness? In short, it means that we should live holy lives after the pattern of God himself who is righteous, the ultimate model of holiness. And once we're armed with this integrity from this belt of truth that we talked about, then we can begin to act righteously, do good deeds from a pure heart. But righteousness is also more than personal holiness. So when you say righteousness, a few things might come to mind, and holiness is one. But it also can be more than that. This Hebrew word for righteousness is also related to this word for justice. And justice, at least in the, in the Bible, as far as that's concerned, is more than just punishing evil. It's also about helping those who are taken advantage of. Justice and righteousness in the Hebrew involve uh, coming to the aid of others as well. For example, in Isaiah 59, in this passage we just read. Verse 13 says that the people are described as, quote, speaking oppression against others. And God's people were not only failing to worship God as he ought in this passage, but they were also oppressing their fellow men and fellow women. And so that's why God says, since there was no one to intercede, the implication is for those who are being oppressed, God himself steps in. So what does that mean for us to put on the breastplate of righteousness? It means not only that we should be personally holy, but we should also be workers of social justice in this world. We should look out for others rather than ignore them. And that's just as much about 
what holiness and what righteousness looks like as personal holiness is. So it involves us making sure that we are pure in heart and living rightly according to God's commands. But also the character of God is to have that heart and love for others, to not be self-focused, but have that righteous care for the plight of others as well. So we reflect God in both of these ways. Next one we have, shoes for the gospel of peace. Um, After we talked about this belt and the breastplate, now we have this other piece, the shoes. In first century Rome, the uh, army boots of soldiers were actually made of several layers of leather, perhaps with a hardened end uh, for the toes. Um, They they had a good grip on rugged terrain, and uh, the straps were also stuffed with wool during the winter to protect the legs from cold weather. Um, They enabled armies like Julius Caesar's to march for miles over rough terrain. And I read somewhere that the the shoes being described here isn't so much the word for running shoes as it was more like boots, ones that could be planted firmly in the ground to get solid footing. So what do they stand for? It says in Ephesians 6.15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So the key word is readiness, right? If we're talking about truth, if we're talking about righteousness, if we're talking about all these things, the word here, and this one's just worded a little bit differently, the word here is readiness. And where does that readiness come from? It comes from the gospel, which is characterized by peace. So it helps us to stand firm. How does it help us to stand firm? Because this one's probably the most confusing, um, just by the way it's worded. First of all, the gospel of peace was originally what brought peace between us and the Father, right? But it also brings peace between us and each other. God eliminated that enmity between us and him, vertically, you could say, and also horizontally, between us and other people. So the gospel is one of peace, which is kind of ironic here because we're talking about war imagery. We're talking about a battle. We're talking about putting on armor, right? And so it's kind of interesting that Paul says it's the gospel of peace that gives us sure footing. The best I'm able to figure here, and after reading commentaries and figuring out where other people fall on it, is that the gospel provides this readiness that when lies come our way, when different circumstances, when, this, when Satan attacks in all sorts of ways in our life, the gospel is the thing that we started on. It's that sure footing that we can fall back on. We can say that, you know what, God is the one who saved me, who brought that peace in my life between myself and him and myself and others. And so it shapes the way that I interact with others. If people are persecuting me or giving me a hard time or just opposed to the things of Christ, it's not a warlike attitude that I have. It's the gospel of peace that saved me. It's not a combative one. It it gives me something to think about in that way when we consider the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. The shield of faith is the next one. So with the body armor in place and the shoes on our feet, we're now prepared to pick up the shield. Verse 16 says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So the standard Roman shield, as I understand it, was rectangular in shape, made of wood, tied together maybe by bands of metal, keeping the different straps of wood together, maybe with a centerpiece made of metal that was meant to deflect various things that would come your way. And... um, 
This is meant to guard against arrows when it says flaming darts, okay? You can imagine that if soldiers lined up, knelt down, and lined these shields together, you have almost an impenetrable wall. And maybe you've seen a movie or two where that was portrayed, where you have the front line lining up these shields in such a manner, and then the row behind them putting it in sort of a diagonal manner on top. And no matter how many arrows are fired, that's a pretty solid wall that will stop it. So the shield was useful against arrows. But notice it says in this text, flaming darts, or flaming arrows, of the evil one. And sure enough, in ancient battles, arrows were sometimes covered in tar, or something flammable, and then ignited. So even if the arrows didn't get to the body, the flame could pierce through the material and ignite the wood on the shield. So in that case, a soldier might be tempted to throw down the shield and run, leaving them totally defenseless. Which is why in this case, or in ancient battles, it was said that sometimes they would soak these shields in water just to kind of protect against those kinds of attacks. So it's here it's saying that that is the kind of shield we have, a water-soaked, flame-resistant shield to withstand these flaming darts of the evil one. What does that look like to um, defend against these attacks? Okay, If flaming arrows um, of Satan are temptations... And our shield is faith. Faith in God and in his promises keeps us safe from Satan's lies when evil, evil times come. Excuse me. So if a loved one you know, for example, is killed in a tragic accident or by a sudden illness, Satan might throw a quote-unquote flaming arrow at you, telling you to be angry at God or to give up your faith. If you become scared or shaken by this event, this flaming arrow of Satan then you might be tempted to give up on your faith in God. Throw down that shield, right? Think about Job. Job is the perfect example for this very thing that's being illustrated. When we talk about a battle that's going on, you can see behind the, the scenes there uh, in the book of Job in chapter 1 what's really happening. And that's a great thing because we normally don't get to see that side of things, what's really happening behind the scenes. Satan was the one that was attempting to discredit Job and also to get him to drop his shield of faith, you could say. To, to give up on God. And we can see two different responses to it. We can see the way Job responded, and we can see the way that his wife responded. Because she says, curse God and die. But Job doesn't take that response. And all of these different things that are happening to Job, whether it's the sores or the boils or the children being killed or the loss of his possessions, can all be thought of as the flaming darts of the evil one. And what was it that helped him to withstand? It's faith. It's faith. At least that's what we're be, uh, being commanded to pick up here to withstand these flaming arrows. If you are ever in a similar circumstance, hold on by faith. If you ever stop and ask God, what exactly are you doing here? Hold firmly to the promises found in Scripture. Remember Nahum 1.7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust in him. Remember 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. These are very real, very sure promises of Scripture. Remember Romans 8. Know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called to his purpose. These are things that we have to be ready with now. Preparing for this battle starts way before the arrows come. 
So knowing Scripture, which Pastor talks about over and over again in reading your Bible through in the year, or just the value of knowing Scripture in general, this is where it comes into play. Because if you don't know Scripture, then you don't have them to fall back on. So if you're not going through anything like this, prepare now. Find those promises in Scripture. Memorize them. Take them to heart. Write them down. Keep them in a, in a place where they're easily accessible to you. Because this is what's going to happen at some point. And these are the things we can rely on with our shield of faith. Next, the helmet of salvation. We want to cover the rest here in our time that's left. Two more pieces of armor. Helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Verse 17 says, Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Starting with the head covering. Um, this is something that would have been made of bronze, um, maybe fitted over iron, and then with several layers of padding um, for comfort. Uh, there's several different designs if you were to try and look up online, you know, what Roman helmets look like and everything, but they, a lot of them were uncomfortable from what I understand, so you'd only put it on when the battle was close. But in Isaiah 59, which we've already talked about, verse 17, it says that God wears the helmet of salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, Let us be sober, having put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. So what is this helmet of salvation in Ephesians. Again, focus on that word salvation here. We're not just focusing on the helmet part, but salvation. You add that to your list. We could say that this is something that is past, it's present, and it's also future. It's that we've already received salvation when we first believed in Christ. We could say that we're being sanctified, we're currently being saved, and that one day we are going to finally be saved in a complete fashion when Christ returns. So salvation is a, is a whole process that could be described in all three ways. And we look to all of those as our helmet, as we think about the attacks on our life, in our spiritual life, of our souls. So as Satan tempts us to go one way or another, or to deny God, or to lose hope, we look back at our salvation and we remember God saved us. That is proof that God loves and cares for his creation. God is currently sanctifying me. Though I may not know what's going on here, I know God is good. And in Romans 8, it says he causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. And if that's true of me, if he saved me, then I know God is doing something in my life, even though I can't pinpoint what that thing is. And even if there's something going on in my life that I'm thinking, I don't know if this is ever going to be gone. I don't know if this will ever fully resolve itself in this life. This might be something I'm struggling with all my life. Or this might be you know, something where the evil men and women of this world get the, the upper hand. Then we look to the future. And we look to this helmet of salvation knowing that God will save us. In the end, God reigns. God wins. Jesus Christ comes back. Evil is defeated. And we remind ourselves of these truths whenever we're tempted to believe otherwise. That leaves the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. Again in verse 17. Sword is only taken up at close range when we think of the word that's used here uh, for sword, and that refers back to the one I actually showed you. It wasn't a broad sword, wasn't a very long sword, but a short one that's used here for this Greek word makaria. It was, covered, uh, excuse me, it was carried by um, heavily armed legionary, and um, it's different from the larger broad sword, a different word that Christ wields in Revelation 19, by the way. Just like Pastor was saying this morning, there are different words for crown, there's different words for sword as well. So um, Paul speaks of this word, the sword of the Spirit. He means the sword 
supplied by the Spirit, is how I would take it. The sword isn't the Holy Spirit himself, but rather the Word of God, which is given to us by the Holy Spirit. So Spirit should be capitalized there. Hence, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So what is this Word of God that the Spirit gives to us? It's the sum total of all that God has revealed to mankind. His words, His actions, the words of Christ. Ultimately, the most perfect collection of the words of God is the book, the Holy Bible, the Scriptures that we have. And these Scriptures form your only offensive piece of armor as you fight against Satan. As you think of all the different analogies given, this is the only offensive one. And that's significant, because if you remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in Matthew 4, what was it that he used that ultimately drove Satan away? It was Scripture. He quoted Scripture. He said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Again, I said the sword is the one offensive weapon. So we see that the Word of God helped Jesus, when he was being tempted, to hold his ground. And actually, it's, I think, of no small thing that Satan flees from him after that scripture is quoted. Now, we shouldn't use scripture as somehow like a voodoo doll, you know, that we can, an incantation, if I say this, you know, this verse, then all of a sudden all my problems are gone. No. But, I, I, again, I think that's placed there for a purpose, that it's listed as this offensive weapon, and that when Christ quote scripture that has great power in both building up our faith and responding to the temptations of the devil. Now, there's no corresponding weapon or piece of armor for prayer, which is the last part of this passage, verses 18 to 20. Ephesians 18 says, praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. But we can still think of it just as much as a weapon at our disposal, as the sword of the spirit. Prayer is listed here among all these other things and it's tremendously important in our spiritual battle. So the result of all this, as we come to a conclusion here, is that if you do all these things, if you pray, if you take up the truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, readiness, and the Word of God, you will stand firm. And our reason for taking up this armor is given verses 11 and 13, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil and so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. So stand firm, therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's your task. No matter what trouble comes your way, I, I can't give you a, 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 you know, a fortune telling of what your life is going to be like in 2018 and what remains, but God has told us that no matter what comes our way, to be ready, to be prepared, to start these things now, so that you're able to stand firm. Remember that for every hardship, Satan has one desired end, your failure. But God has another, your sanctification. And don't be dismayed, for God has given you the tools that you'll need to not give in. And therefore, wait on God, it says. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I, I do pray tonight that whether we are going through a battle of our own even in the current time, or we're not facing something like that at the moment, maybe one is forthcoming, that you would help us to do everything to be ready, to take these things that are described, truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, readiness, and the word of God, along with prayer, 
to be able to stand firm when those times come. Help us, Lord, even in our response to individuals, not to be combative um, as we share our faith or or find people who are opposed to us. Lord, but remember, it's the gospel of peace that we bear. And God, in the end, may we rely upon your power to stand firm until Christ comes again. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You are dismissed. And keep in mind, for those in senior choir, uh, they'll be meeting in just a few moments in Fellowship Hall.